With the intersection of advanced data technologies and the evolution of healthcare, both providers and patients look to benefit, but security, privacy, and data hygiene still loom as potential areas of concern. Hello, I'm your host, Paul Teese, and in this episode of If When, we discuss data science advances in the context of healthcare with two data science experts from Jacobs. Joining me for this episode are Dr. Jennifer Bloom, Senior Director Data Scientist, Jacobs CMS Cyber and Intelligence Business Unit, and David Morgaridge, Director of Predictive Analytics, Jacobs People and Places Solutions. Well, Jennifer and David, thank you both so very much for joining me today. We're going to be talking about data science in the context of healthcare management. I know Jacobs is doing a lot of work uh, in that realm, and also uh, it's kind of a, a very interesting time we find ourselves in, and you know, obviously with the <laughs> pandemic and whatnot. So people are very focused on the healthcare experience. And so we're going to be talking about how data science can help improve that, both for the healthcare providers as well as for the patients. So I want to thank you both for joining me. Uh, David, we're going to start with you. And our first question out of the gate is, what do you see are some of the top benefits that prescriptive data analytics can provide to healthcare systems? Well, let me, let me start with, um, with a definition of the of what's foundational to prescriptive analytics. I think understanding what that, what that means, making sure we've got a definition is probably a good thing. Um, and so prescriptive analytics is sort of the top tier of a three-tier evolution. Uh, at, the, at the bottom level would be a descriptive analytics. So simple tools analyzing historical data to understand generally what happened, how long did something take, pretty basic. Predictive analytics, which is, I don't know, that, that's my title in the firm, Director of Predictive Analytics, is, is a significant step up. You're still looking at historical data to understand what happened, but you've also got a simulation model, uh, very detailed, that allows you to, to simulate the complete work environment within which that historical data was created. So in a healthcare context, you've got you know, the architectural space, medical equipment, communication technologies, staffing models, patient arrival, patterns, detailed process definitions. In other words, you've got a, a faithful second-by-second second, um, representation of all of the work that produced all of that historical data. And the predictive part is when you say, well, you know, the, some of the KPIs historically weren't the best. What could we do to improve those? And so you, you make some changes to that model. You, you add another treatment space. You add two more doctors. Uh, you improve a clinical process. Um, and then you run the model again. You say, well, let's see, did that help move the needle on the KPI? Um, and so I've, I've done 50 of those. It's a, it's a major focus of Jacob's work. But it's episodic. It's a project. It's got to start, a finish, and you're done. The key, the, the, the big game changer for prescriptive analytics is, is the digital twin. Mm -hmm. What that does to this predictive model is it one, it lets the model take current state real-time data. So there's data streaming from the electronic health record from the, the real-time location-based service solution. Um, and suddenly that model is in a current state always in a dashboard on the, on the C-suite's laptop. Additionally, it's got artificial intelligence, AI and machine learning ML applications that are trying to look for trends, make relationships, and 
It's using that historical data to project forward an hour, two hours, four hours, eight hours, 16 hours, and it's looking for KPI problems. So the institution is going to have, you know, it doesn't have a wait, it doesn't want to have a wait time more than an hour in the ED. It doesn't want to have the length of stay of an admitted patient be more than 240 minutes. Uh, it doesn't want to have a door-to-dock time of, of more than an hour and 20 minutes. Mm-hmm. So as this, as this uh, digital twin is running, it's looking for, is there any, are any of those KPIs going to get compromised? And if it finds a situation where it is, it then spawns another series of simulations that tries to look for answers. What could be done right now to prevent a, a KPI degradation eight hours from now? And it produces a whole range of solutions and then offers those to the leadership of the emergency department or whatever clinic you're modeling um, and lets them take action that, that avoids performance degradation. So that's the prescriptive part. Predictive finds problems but doesn't offer solutions. Prescriptive in this digital twin environment finds the problems and then gives you solutions to fix them. Mm-hmm. Um, so the benefit to the, to the provider is that they've got a very smooth running operation. It helps them stay profitable and it helps them deliver a good patient experience. Uh, it helps keep costs down so that the, the provider benefits and the patient benefits. You know, if, you, if you've got a, a newer car that yeah. has um, active suspension system, it's sort of the same way. You used to have a car that had a shock absorber, a spring, and a, and a tire. Yeah. And you'd hit a pothole and you'd bounce a little bit. And, and these active systems now have lots of data, lots of processors, and, and it's reading the condition of the road a couple of thousand times per second mm-hmm. and adjusting the operation of your suspension. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's kind of what these prescriptive analytic tools do in a, in a healthcare environment for, for a hospital or a clinic or an emergency department or you know, however, however broadly the, the technology is, is spread. In our, in our practice, in the, in the predictive room, we're, we're doing one prescriptive solution now for a, a, a confidential, but a sort of top, a top-tier healthcare provider, and that's, that's what we're allowed to say. But in the predictive world, we, we've done projects that have saved clients an upfront cost, three to $5 million, $8 million, $100 million. Uh, over the course of the 12-year program, $983 million. Mm. Uh, in an ongoing annual operating cost, seven hundred eighty-three thousand mm-hmm. dollars. So, so those are things that we know about in the in the predictive project-based model, and and you can imagine that as this becomes a real-time effort, those those same kinds of savings are going to be going on not on a project basis, but on, a, on an every second basis, mm-hmm. and the um, the optimization of performance for the provider and the and the recipient of care, the patient is going to be huge. Mm-hmm. Okay. And then on the flip side, how can data science help improve the quality of care that patients receive from their healthcare providers? I think the, the, the key thing about you know, data science is, is a way of dealing with very large data sets that are very complex. You know, human, human physiology and, and disease make a very complex overlay of, of a data problem. And, and, that, and data science, you know, to, to, in the abstract sense, that's a, that's, a, that's a right target for these kinds of tools. If you look at what IBM did with Watson, that was the first you know, artificial intelligence cognitive computing environment that got a lot of public attention. Mm-hmm. Um, it won Jeopardy, uh, won a, a Jeopardy game, it won a chess game. You know? yeah. but the very first commercial application of that 
was in healthcare. Mm. And the key about that is it allows uh, personalized medicine to happen. And I think that's just like in our design solutions. Um, I did a project for the Army where I looked at 9,305 different solutions Mm-hmm. Problem, to find the best solution for that for that particular environment. Mm-hmm. Our, our water resources team in St. Louis just did a problem where they simulated 80,000 solutions in 36 hours, looking through lots of data to find the right solution for that problem. And, and so when you look at, per, so the, the key thing that data science is going to do is let healthcare become personalized and targeted. So anybody who's had the TV on at least twice over the past two years has, has heard a lot of discussions about COVID. And you know, mm-hmm. if you've got a, you know, a five-year-old that's healthy, a 10-year-old that's got leukemia, a 30-year-old that's healthy, and a 65-year-old that's got dementia, mm-hmm. those are not the same people. And does it make sense to say there is a solution for people? Mm-hmm. Probably not. And, and that's the key thing that data science is going to let us do is to find very targeted therapies that, that will provide much better care, at lower cost, more effectively uh, than, the, than the mass, you know, one size fits all solutions. Gotcha. So we're going to um, bring up, uh, we're going to kind of look at data privacy, of course, you know, as a concern, uh, especially with countries that have the GDPR in effect. And so, and Jennifer, I want to bring you in on this, and then David also want to get your your thoughts on on data privacy as well. But let me start with Jennifer. You know, what are some effective strategies you see coming into play that will balance potential data privacy concerns while allowing healthcare organizations and care professionals access to a patient's most sensitive data? Well, I think one of the most uh, promising and uh, cool technologies is actually the use of blockchain. So initially, what you want is secure transmission of information. Uh, you want things to be encrypted, um, not just from at the start and at the finish, but you also want it at uh, every stage, anytime it's viewed, anytime um, it gets transferred from one point to another. And so uh, you need uh, something to you need uh, verification and um, authentication that whoever is meant to receive or view this information is in fact doing so. And so that process can be really, really tedious. But the good thing is with blockchain, what you can do is not only is that a cradle to the grave strategy for a person's information, but it involves a person being able to make sure that they have their own private key and a person who is going to view the information has their public key and there is that handshake, that exchange of information. And I think that would prevent um, a lot of things. And I think um, we'll probably talk about that later with preventing um, fraud and ransomware. And then so David, also from where you sit, let's, you know, talking about data privacy, what are some effective strategies you see coming into play that will balance uh, data privacy concerns with allowing healthcare professionals to get access to the data? I'm not sure what the right answer is to that question. I can tell you that it, it, it's, so I, I haven't run into the right solution, but I can tell you that the problem is pretty tremendous. And that digital twin project that I was mentioning earlier, um, we have had to, to perform all work on the client's infrastructure uh, because we couldn't come up with a way to figure out how to de-identify the data in a cost-effective manner that, that would allow us to have it on our network. And in fact, some of the data that we determined was required 
is is not de-identifiable. So so that's a that's a real challenge. And th there are some solutions that that we're looking into. We have a good relationship with Microsoft Azure, and the initial approach to using AI and ML for this client was in the cloud. And they have since said that the process of de-identification is very complicated. Um, and in fact, it's not as simple as saying this element is okay and this element is not okay. Mm -hmm. uh, because you can have two elements on their own that are okay. And if you put them together, suddenly they're protected health information and they're not okay. <laughs> yeah. It's complicated. Mm -hmm. And there's actually a third, there's a third party firm that has to validate that you've done it mm -hmm. before it can be used. So it's a really complicated process. And we haven't yet found a good solution within the context of this project. One thing I will say, though, is that just recently, a small healthcare system in Massachusetts and uh, in New Hampshire mm -hmm. uh, have committed to move their entire electronic healthcare record and every other of the 300 data applications they have to Amazon's cloud service. Uh, and that's something that, that Amazon is broadcasting all over the place because it's a huge step forward. Um, we don't know exactly what they did to, to make that okay from a data privacy perspective, but, but actually we're going to try to contact them and see if that's um, you know, something that we can leverage with, uh, with this client that we have. But, so I, I haven't run into the solution <laughs> that mm -hmm. you presented, but I've certainly seen the problem of what it means uh, if you don't have uh, you know, a better solution than the ones that we currently you know, work with. Yeah, no, I think it's fascinating. It's interesting because uh, the context can be very important. It's not just the information, but it's the context. And I'd had a conversation with uh, a digital journalist, an author, and he, he talked about this back when the GDPR was just uh, coming into effect. You know, you could, to that point of like certain elements are innocent on their own, but when you combine them together, can so I think the example he gave, it's like you can tell, like foot traffic into a hospital at a certain time of day, but then you can also pair that with say, you know, somebody could find out when somebody like got an Uber, took the Uber to that location. And then, you know, so you, you can start putting together this picture. Oh, well, Jane Doe took an Uber at that time and she ended up at that location. And it's, you know, the foot traffic was in the hospital. And while it didn't identify Jane Doe, you can, you can put two and two together and kind of figure out, you know, that Jane Doe was visiting the hospital. So it's, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a bit more tricky than than you might at first blush think. So now, Jennifer, in a in a similar vein, can you speak to some of the potential cybersecurity pitfalls of an expanded digital footprint in the healthcare industry, and how do you see those being overcome? Two of them actually that we're already seeing and that we'll continue to see as we get more digitized is uh, ransomware, which I think we're, it's in the news all the time, unfortunately, from, from banks to hospitals uh, where, you know, records are either locked, systems are shut down until you pay the agreed amount um, to the hackers or whatever entity is doing it. Um, but also what you'll see uh, is, I imagine, more, uh, <clears throat> more events that are fraud-based. Um, as you get more digitized. Um, so, you know, if you're no longer required to come in physically to validate who you are, um, how, how would you do that? And so um, what, one methodology that I think would be really useful for 
uh, helping to overcome that, or at least starting to, um, is what I mentioned before with the thing of blockchain, which is secure encryption, where you have your own private key and there is a public key available uh, to whoever you want to view the data and you both need to make that agreement before anything is shown. Um, I think that'll definitely help with ransomware because blockchain is uh, multifaceted, so multi-layered. It gets re really complicated and I, and I, and I love it, but um, it, in a nutshell, it's that uh, not only uh, no, no tr trespasser, no digital trespasser can, can view what, what you see. Unlike, you know, I think in a more traditional sense where like if you just, uh, someone clicked on a phishing email and all of a sudden you're in, but mm -hmm. what if, if they got into the system, uh, it didn't matter because they didn't, still didn't have the credentials needed to even, they, they could see that there's data, but they have no idea what's on it. So it doesn't matter. They wouldn't know necessarily what's important or what's not. I mean, you can make the assumption that it's all important, but um, I imagine it would be a bit uh, stopping them a little bit more on their tracks. And on the fraud side, mitigating that would be uh, with, with, uh, with blockchain, you can actually add to it. So if I say, if a person goes into a doctor's appointment, that gets categorized, piece of data. And then they go back a month later, piece of data that gets tagged onto it. That is, uh, those things become immutable. Um, in a sense. And so you can't go back and change it for fraud purposes. So like you went last month, you can't say you went twice last month. Mm -hmm. So I, I imagine it would also save, um, save some people some money. Mm, interesting. And then as a uh, adjacent to that is the, the topic of data management practices too, you know, and I think that, and David, I think you and I have talked about this in the past about poor data management and the impact that it can have on projects and stuff. And clients want you to wave a magic wand and the data is just not, it's not what it is. But so Jennifer, what are some of the best data management practices you're seeing or hearing about in the healthcare industry? So excited. <laughs> um, so what, so one of them is actually is uh, having a centralized system. So the electronic mm -hmm. health record, mm -hmm. um, love it. Most people think of it as their patient portal. Uh, you know, you go in, assuming you're assigned to a particular health organization, you go get your uh, blood drawn or whatever, the records pop up there. Another doctor needs to look at it. Great. They can do so. It's like one-stop shopping and, uh, and it's awesome. I, I really like that. I'm starting to see more of that now. Um, mm -hmm. the, the trouble that I, that I see um, that a lot of places that aren't doing it is because you just need to get everything into that system. So nurses' notes, um, any like imagery of say any you know uh, any MRIs or any mm -hmm. just ad hoc notes that are put on paper that all needs to go in there. And I think places are getting better with that, but I think it still has a long way to go. And uh, and the second best practice to me is standardizing the information. Mm -hmm. So um, if everything's in a different format. Um, and I don't just mean like you do a PDF and I'm doing a Word doc. I mean, literally, uh, you know, I, so I'm, I'm based in Europe. They write the, um, they wrote the day first and then the month. But, you know, in the, in the States, we do it the reverse. Something as simple as that can cause great errors with a physician um, in a much more extreme sense where it's like medical data because they're not quite sure what they're looking at. And then uh, my last question for both of you, and David, I'll, I'll start with you. And then Jennifer, I'll ask you is, so, David, what do you see as some of the more intriguing developments that machine learning is going to bring to healthcare data management in the next decade? Let me go back to the cybersecurity thing just for a second, because mm -hmm. uh, 
you know, conversations about um, malware or ransomware typically focus on financial elements. And in healthcare, <clears throat> there's also a clinical component. <clears throat> and that one hasn't been discussed a whole lot, but Vanderbilt University just recently did a study where they were trying to determine what, what impact degraded system performance. However, that, you know, that can vary. Either, either it's not working or data is not available or it's slow or whatever the issue might be. How does that impact a clinician's ability to, to provide care to a patient? Um, and they started with heart attacks. Uh, and their conclusion was that for every 10,000 heart attacks, there are an additional 36 deaths due to degraded system performance resulting from malware or ransomware. Mm. So I think there's a, a whole other impetus, at least mm -hmm. in the healthcare space, that's going to be added to figuring out why this has to, why this has to get fixed. Mm. Um, so, well, so back to the, the machine learning thing. Um, yeah. One of the, the key thing about machine learning is that the data has to be there. And if the only data that's available is that that large systems have, like Kaiser Permanente or the Cleveland Clinic, uh, it's going to short circuit a lot of other smaller organizations from getting involved in this process. And so mm -hmm. um, there's, a, there's a market that's developed for firms that put together these kind of data packages. So Prognos Health is one of the firms that does that. Um, they, they put together 500 different data sources. They've got 230 plus million people, mm -hmm. 1 billion plus labs. And so this now becomes a data set against, you know, if, if they've got the right folks in it, the, a data set that, that you could acquire if you wanted to do research and you had your own little eight clinic system um, that you were trying to compare your results against a larger pool. And that's the key thing that data science is about. Well, you know, there are firms now that are, that are trying to democratize access to that kind of data, which I think is essential for this to happen. Uh, the second thing is, well, once you've got the data, is it good data? Um, you know, I, I know in the work that I, I do, every single project that I've done in this space in the last 13 years, and that's 60 of them, data integrity, data quality have been a huge issue. And, and there are now firms that are focused on that. There's one called Cognizant AI. And, and they, they take these data sets from other folks and they look for bias in how the data is assembled, they look for data integrity issues. And so if you're, if you're the person who's wanting to do research in this space, uh, there are now you know, third-party organizations that are able to provide that kind of data too. And I know I've, I've used, um, I used uh, Truven Health when I did a study once like this, and it was it was that which has been acquired by IBM. Mm -hmm. um, and that was a phenomenal service. So I, I, I just preface the response by saying the ability for, for smaller groups to have access to the kind of data that let them get involved in this is growing, and that's a that's a good market. But if you wanted to look for specific examples, um, you know, one one example would be inner R. Uh, that's a project that's that's a joint venture between Microsoft and uh, the United Kingdom's National Health Service. If, you, if you've ever looked at your own x-ray or your own CT or MRI or <laughs> ultrasound, mm. you know, there's this, this fuzzy gray stuff up there. And somehow a radiologist is supposed to look at that and figure out, is there a problem? What's mm. the problem? How do I treat it? 
And in cancer, that's particularly difficult to develop radio, radi radiation therapy programs, you know, depending upon what the cancer is, where it is, what's the right type of radiation therapy, is it photon therapy, how many, how many, how many visits do you need, what's, you know, it's a whole, it, it could be a process. And so this inner eye program was an, it was an effort by Microsoft and the NHS to use artificial intelligence to help the radiologists. And radiologists are very highly paid folks. So it, it not only helps them be clinically better, but it also helps drive down the cost if you can reduce the amount of time that they need to spend doing this kind of work. Um, and in, in this case, they reduced the time to put together a, a radiation therapy program for a cancer patient by 13 times. Wow. You know, so that, that's one teeny example of, of what's happening in that space. Mm -hmm. Drug therapy is another one. Uh, Pfizer has teamed up with IBM Watson to mm -hmm. do you know, immunotherapy research again against cancer. Um, so I, I think you know there, there isn't there isn't a there isn't a malady you could find where there isn't somebody using data science in some way mm -hmm. to try to better understand the means of data that. And an important point to me, a lot of times when you talk about data science, you're thinking about numbers, mm -hmm. and numbers are important. But there's also content. And one of the first things that IBM did with Watson was to have it ingest thousands and thousands of pages of clinical diagnoses and case mm -hmm. studies and research, uh, because part of what you're trying to do is not just let it look at numbers, but know what am I trying to find in that number? And so there's, a, there's a, an interesting blend of text mm -hmm. where there's intellectual content and data that represents a current state and how AI can help look at the numbers smarter, I guess. Mm -hmm. And then Jennifer, from your standpoint, you know, what do you see are some of the more intriguing developments that uh, machine learning is going to bring to healthcare data management in the next decade? So I'm going to piggyback on what David said first, with a, which is um, with disease predictability. Um, mm -hmm. So I know he already, he already uh, discussed it a bit, but traditionally, this, this will be from a numbers perspective. Uh, mm -hmm. when, uh, currently, you use like a risk calculator to try to predict, you know, how likely is this person to get this particular ailment. And, uh, you know, you're at the mercy of, say, like knowing their, their routine, um, their genetics, mm -hmm. their, you know, their habits, all that stuff. But say you're at the mercy of just like six factors and they've, uh, they found in multiple studies that, you know, they're just not incredibly accurate, but with machine learning, um, they can, uh, machine, uh, you can program a model or a simulation to build off of that. And it can just huge amounts of information. And I know that's something that Watson's going to be definitely, um, perfect for, but, um, you can have up to 200 factors, um, that's all getting pulled from different, um, you know, different devices. So, you know, like, of course, with the user's permission, you're wearing a smartwatch and pulling in that information and the algorithms will, will spit out for all intents and purposes, spit out a number. And it has a much higher degree of accuracy with trying to predict, you know, how likely you are to get a particular disease. So that's something I think that's uh, really exciting. Um, another thing that's less, I guess, healthcare management, just with healthcare in general, and David and I spoke of this mm. is, um, with just machine learning, using it for AI and doing it for um, uh, remote, we're having remote surgeries from, mm -hmm. from physicians, um, also having robotic assistants. So, you know, like you're like, like David said, you're looking at something, you're, you know, you have an expert looking at, 
your, your MRI scan, what are, what are you even looking at? Um, but if a computer can tell you, hey, these two things are like, you know, a micron off, mm-hmm. you know, that's something that he, uh, he or she wouldn't necessarily be able to see. And then my own personal, uh, my own personal favorite with robots is, of course, the uh, augmented, uh, 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 yeah, augmented um, light lifestyle. So, you know, you have someone in a wheelchair, you can use AI to help them have their uh, a bit more of a robotic skeleton. And this is, this is more than 10 years that I'm, I'm super excited, but also they're currently working on bionic limbs. So, you know, you have prosthetics that are, you know, respond much more faster to, um, you know, heat or cold or, um, you know, what you, what you want them to do. So that's more of improvement in lifestyle of the patient, less healthcare mm. management, but I think they're both equally exciting. Oh, very cool. Very cool. Well, Jennifer and David, I want to thank you both so very much for joining me today. Uh, It's really fascinating to see kind of where we're going in the healthcare sphere and like what, you know, where data science is leading the way. So thank you both so much.